0: This is our new Asia series from Control Risks, where we bring you insights from our in-house experts on the most pressing political, economic, and security risks we see emerging in the Asia-Pacific. I'm Dane Chamaro, a partner in our Asia business. From our offices in Singapore, Shanghai, New Delhi, and elsewhere, our team of specialist consultants help businesses that are operating and investing amidst a whole manner of challenges. This ranges from political and regulatory analysis, to vendor screening, strategic intelligence, crisis planning, and cyber response, just to name a few. Today we're talking about Bangladesh and how its political system, in particular the concentration of power and decision-making in the hands of long-term Prime Minister Sheikh Hazina, is bearing up amid the COVID-19 crisis.
1: 2020 was supposed to be an easy year for Hussein. She got all her political ducks in a row. The opposition party is at the brink of extinction. The, The opposition leader was in jail. She has a cabinet with fairly inexperienced young ministers Even in the pandemic, Hasina doesn't have like a ex-health expert who understands the realities of Bangladesh and is advising her on how to sort of structure intervention. They're mostly looking at what other countries, especially what India is doing and sort of taking a cue from that. So it's very much Hasina for the next few years. But then that becomes a huge risk if you don't have a succession plan and you don't have any other major political force which can be a key contender to power.
0: That and more coming up in this episode from Control Risk's Asia-Pacific team. For many, Bangladesh may conjure up images of mass poverty and instability, but the administration of Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina has chalked up record GDP growth in the past five years, averaging somewhere between 6% and 8% annually. The government has also presided over a much-needed infrastructure program, making power outages a thing of the past, and significantly improving the national transportation network. This has made Bangladesh something of a darling amongst foreign investors comfortable with frontier markets. However, like many regional emerging economies, the country is reliant on just a few sectors, in this case specifically ready-made garments, to generate national income. This has left it particularly vulnerable to COVID-19 related economic shocks. To talk through the situation in Bangladesh, I'm joined by Rima Bhattacharya, control risk analyst for South Asia. Rima worked in our investigations practice in New Delhi before joining our analytical team and prior to that worked in government affairs for Edelman Communications and the Walt Disney Company. She has advanced degrees in politics, media, and business law. I started by asking Rima about the forecast that suggests Bangladesh's growth will slow dramatically this year.
1: I think Bangladesh has come a long way, especially in the last decade under Hasina. They've, they're the fastest growing economy, although it's, you know, Bangladesh is poorer than its South Asian neighbors, but they've sort of, you know, they're growing in leaps and bounds. The Although Bangladesh is really not new to uh, environmental crisis or humanitarian crisis, they're not socially or economically, politically set up to handle something of this scale. I don't think any other country is, but more so Bangladesh. So what what the current pandemic has done has sort of exacerbated some of the structural weaknesses of the economy. Um, So basically, over-reliance on sectors that are vulnerable to global shocks, especially the RMG sector, which is an export-focused sector, also their remittances sector. These are two key pillars of their economy. They're both badly hit. I mean, their recovery will depend on, you know, how fast the world comes out of a recession. So it's completely pegged to what happens in the external market. Meanwhile, you know, the local financial sector, the banking sector is more fragile than ever. So that means private investment, local manufacturing and development will not be able to keep pace with the kind of needs, uh, especially funding needs and financing needs uh, for the country in the next coming years. So definitely, I mean, uh, the, the figures that we're seeing, you know, a retraction of from 8% to 2%, as crazy as, as that sounds, is, is probably going to be a reality for Bangladesh for the next couple of years. And, you know, for a frontier market like Bangladesh, it's very, you know, numbers often mean uh, very little and especially... With such a huge informal sector of over 60, 70 percent, you know, the kind of layoffs we are looking at, the unemployment figures, although they mean very little, I mean, some estimates go to 50 to 60 percent, sort of million people uh, getting laid off in the next couple of years. So that has a huge social cost. I mean, we are seeing near daily protests which are becoming even more violent. So we'll, we'll definitely see a lot more churn and turmoil, um, especially in terms of labor unrest and you know the, the social fabric of the country.
0: Do we think that that's going to play a greater role in the short-term future? Or will the expected growth next year kind of the bounce back, plus the stimulus that the governments announced, plus the uh, announcements of some of the multilaterals in terms of aid that they'll provide to Bangladesh, do we think that that will actually keep things under control? Or if, if I'm a foreign investor in Bangladesh, should I expect to see a lot more labor and civil strife?
1: It's very difficult to predict whether the government interventions will work. I mean, the stimulus package that the government has announced is more or less just to ensure that there is enough liquidity in the market. But in terms of uh, support, additional support to, say, RMG companies, tax incentives and things like that, more operational support, we've not seen a lot coming through. So we'll definitely see a lot more localized unrest. But will they go, I mean, will they completely sort of append social order? I don't think so. What Hasina has been able to do over the last decade is to sort of really co-opt the military as well as the local law enforcement. You know, we've we've seen the, the dark side of these things so in terms of, you know, forced disappearances, uh, some sort of extrajudicial methods that that the local law enforcement has used in the past to keep local unrest in check, we'll see a lot more of that. I think generally with countries which have authoritarian governments, we've seen that they've used the pandemic to sort of, you know, uh, expand their executive powers. Hasina will probably do that as soon as she sees this is a real threat happening and this is sort of scaring off foreign companies. So I think that itself will sort of keep unrest from reaching a point where it becomes a major problem in the country. But definitely, I mean, in terms of specific sectors, I think, especially in the RMG sector, we'll definitely see a lot more operational disruptions. And it'll be difficult for the government to manage these things in in the next couple of years.
0: So that brings me to a good point that you kind of touched upon, and, and I'll use the word diversification, because you've talked a lot about RMG and in many ways in the last decade plus, Bangladesh has been a one party or effectively a one party, one could say one, one ruler, administration. So what do we think the prospects are for diversification both in the economy away from this over-reliance on garments and remittances but also in the political field where Sheikh Hasina has kind of marginalized all of her formal opposition. I believe there's always been commentary around her wanting to have her son replace her, but in many ways he's not well-placed well to do that. So if we kind of envision Bangladesh a decade from now in the future, what do we think that looks like?
1: i think in terms of uh, diversification whether it's the economy or, or and politics even less so i think i mean the chances are bleak and i think that's where the real threat to you know bangladesh's political future comes through as you said uh, you know hasina has sort of consolidated uh, her political power uh, to an extent that there is virtually no threat to the awami league for the next decade, you know, twenty twenty was supposed to be an easy year for Hassan. It's supposed to. It was the year where she got all her political ducks in a row. The opposition party is at the brink of extinction. The, the opposition leader was in jail. She's managed to marginalize the Islamist parties, the Jamaat's of the world, and others. So what has happened is, you know, there's over-centralization of power in the PMO. There is no t- the second tier of advisors, you know, really experts who advise her for key sectors. Even in the pandemic, I think what I was surprised to see is that Hasina doesn't have like a ex-health expert who understands the realities of Bangladesh and is advising her on how to sort of structure intervention. They're mostly looking at what other countries, especially what India is doing and sort of taking a cue from that. So that that itself will make institutions more fragile. It will make, you know, she has a she has a cabinet with fairly inexperienced young ministers, all this power centered on one person. And again, as you said, you know, her son Joy, we don't see him taking on a major leadership role even during the pandemic. So it's very much Hasina for the next few years. She's she's healthy. She thinks that she'll be able to sort of, you know, carry this on for the next decade. But then then that becomes a huge risk if you don't have a succession plan and you don't have any other major political force which can be a key contender to power. So in terms of diversification there, I don't see many prospects. And I think the one thing which I would look out for is how... In this light, Hasina's relationship with the military evolves because, you know, the military has played a very interesting role, has sort of intervened from time to time in Bangladesh's history, every time when there is deep political instability. So one of Hasina's major political achievements, I would say, is how she sort of built this relationship up with the military, where she's given them lucrative commercial contracts and you know she's created a space within the country's political economy for them to function so they sort of run key sectors like the port sector they have significant commercial interests in the rmg sector so she's sort of given them their piece of the pie so they kind of go along with her and help her sort of build her own uh, consolidated political base. Now with so much economic fragility, institutional weaknesses, with all the social unrest, I think the military will see an opportunity because Hasina will need their help more than ever to sort of keep peace. And, and, and the military might see this as a leverage to, to sort of take on a more uh, prominent role as they have in the past. So I think in terms of uh, politics, I think that how that relationship evolves is something we should watch out for also. I mean, also for foreign investors, obviously.
0: So what, what you've described, and it's a fairly brittle system environment, whether it's you are talking about politically, societally, economically, it doesn't take much to kind of throw it off course and often in quite a dramatic way. Um, we, We touched upon the fact that multilaterals and probably in a bilateral basis as well, Bangladesh will get aid from countries that are interested in its developmental future and the multilaterals, so World Bank I think already approved a certain amount. Do we think that with those will come effective reform of some kind, whether it's opening up key sectors or greater space for political opposition or whatever it might be, do we think that those creditors are going to be able to insist effectively on some changes in the system to make it less brittle and more resilient? Uh,
1: That's a great question. I think they'll balance it out. I mean, most emerging markets, Bangladesh included, are looking at, you know, domestic sources for financing. So their reliance on external finance, I think they'll sort of hedge their bets and they'll be more cautious there on that front. But again, uh, for some immediate sort of relief and in terms of managing Uh, pandemic response, Bangladesh has already gone to IMF and and also World Bank and others. So donor money in Bangladesh has always come with strings attached. They've kind of had to reluctantly liberalize a lot of sectors, agree to a lot of, you know, reform measures and, you know, ease of doing business measures for foreign companies. So what has happened is that it's kind of rolled out a red carpet in key sectors for foreign companies. It might do that for the next five years, but then it will sort of bring its own problems later on because Bangladesh, one of the reasons Bangladesh has never got its taxation in key sectors right is because the opening up of those sectors has been sort of, you know, donor forced and they've come with their own conditions. So even if there are immediate reforms that it's forced to undertake in key sectors, later on they will come up with a lot of more predatory tax enforcement, a lot of tax discrimination, Difficulties for foreign companies later on, for and and we we are we are already seeing that right now with the kind of strain in government finances, we are seeing a lot of heightened contract risks in in key sectors. So, all major PPP public private partnership projects. I mean, there is a huge risk for the government to backtrack on those because it simply does not have the finances or has to redirect its money for pandemic efforts. So we'll see more of this definitely in, in the coming months. And I think that's one risk area that foreign companies have to think through, even if Bangladesh gets more donor money. Uh,
0: and, th- and this also kind of leads into the topic of BRI, Belt and Road Initiative from China. So Bangladesh, it doesn't really get a lot of press or media attention in this respect, but it's actually quite key. Uh, Pakistan tends to get a lot of, of press attention, partly because of the dollars involved, but. But Bangladesh is also quite key, and they seem to have managed in investments from China and, frankly, from, from other countries as well, like Japan, much better in terms of the debt that comes along with it, much better than Pakistan or Sri Lanka or the Maldives or, or you know, some of the other countries in South Asia. So what's your current read of the status of BRI uh, in Bangladesh?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, Bangladesh in comparison to its other South Asian neighbors has really very strategically used its foreign investment policy as a very clever geopolitical tool where it's managed to create a space for every major regional power without antagonizing the other. So what they've done is, you know, when it comes to readily accessible, cheap Chinese loans, they've used all that money for infrastructure, for for really cash-intensive development projects. But at the same time, kept strategic projects for important partners like U.S. and, and India. So whether it's gas fields, you'll not see a lot of Chinese investments there. At the same time, Europe is their major trading partner, it's their major RMG client. So they've sort of given a piece of the pie to every regional partner. And at the same time, they've sort of avoided the debt trap or the pitfalls that we've seen in, in, you know, Maldives succumb to Pakistan and and so on and so forth. So now with the current pandemic, I think even that model is at the risk of being appended because what's happened is, especially with the Chinese-funded Belt and Road power projects in Bangladesh, they've, they've become an albatross around Bangladesh's neck. It's a huge economic burden. So what's what's really happened is Bangladesh has gone from a country with acute power shortages to now uh, a power surplus country because they've just sort of given out these contracts, these power construction contracts, without really thinking through in terms of, you know, uh, what the supply side looks like and, and what kind of power generation they actually need to meet their their demand and supply. So with the with the current fall in industrial demand, honestly, the power sector has huge overcapacity issues. So the government will have to pay out of its pocket to keep the Chinese-funded power projects, you know, afloat because there's simply no demand. That again is a huge strain on their. Uh, finances at a time where where you know every money counts and has to be directed towards pandemic uh, response efforts. So this itself would force Bangladesh to look at more external financing, look at ways to sort of keep its own local economy afloat. So in terms of BRI projects, I do see them becoming a big burden. And, and the strategy that has worked for Bangladesh for so long will primarily be one of the reasons why it will face a lot of economic hardship in the coming years.
0: So to summarize some of Rima's key points here, until this year, Sheikh Hasina's Awami League government had been successful at generating record economic growth and improving national infrastructure, especially the power grid while at the same time balancing the interests of foreign players in the country like China, Japan, and the West, and generally avoiding the debt trap that has ensnared some of Bangladesh's neighbors, such as Pakistan and the Maldives. However, the pandemic has brought new challenges to Sina and her small circle of advisors, and has exposed some weaknesses in terms of the government's ability to effectively respond to a public health crisis on its own terms without simply following the lead of its larger neighbor, India. As a result, estimates suggest that economic growth will fall to low single digits in 2020, and this is likely to bring some operational disruption, especially in the ready-made garments industry, which is a major employer. Sheikh Hasina's effective cultivation of the military, however, and the effective elimination of any political opposition, means that overall, political stability and the openness to foreign investment should remain assured, despite some social unrest as a result of mass layoffs. Thanks all for listening. This was another in our New Asia podcast series, and we'll be back with more in the coming days. In the meantime, please go to our website, controlrisks.com, for more analysis, or you can subscribe to all our podcasts on Acast, iTunes, or Spotify. Just search for
1: Control Risks.